these are the things that I learned during the 51st week of 2010, December 19th through December 25th. December 19th. A random rookie on a football team can be the one to win the game for them. This one definitely did not age well in any capacity. Let's give some background on what I meant by this. On December 19th, 2010, a Sunday, there was a New England Patriots game on primetime against the Green Bay Packers. This tight end made four catches for 31 yards and caught two touchdown passes, winning 31-27 in week 15 of the 2010 NFL season. His two-touchdown performance earned him the Pepsi NFL Rookie of the Week, according to Wikipedia. Thanks to the NFL's extensive archives and historical preservation of game statistics, I was able to trace back who this person was. The player was Aaron Hernandez, selected by the New England Patriots in the fourth round of the 2010 NFL Draft. That year was his rookie year, and he did admittedly perform well in the game for the team. His conduct off the field, however, was not stellar. Accounts from various teammates, as well as Coach Belichick himself, stated that he was difficult to work with. He also had a history of drug use and violence, which ultimately culminated in the murder of Odin Lloyd in June of 2013. Of course, these events and details would come to light years later. However, on December 19th, 2010, as someone who didn't dig all that deep into players' biographies and prior history, I took this at face value, noting that the two touchdowns that Hernandez achieved during this primetime game against the Green Bay Packers was a major win for the Patriots in this NFL season. And it just so happened that it was his rookie year, and he was awarded for it. It is just a shame that this topic ended up being uncomfortable due to surrounding events, both before, during, and after. It is too bad I couldn't make this topic about Rob Gronkowski, also a rookie in the same year, and was also awarded the Pepsi NFL Rookie of the Week during adjacent weeks. But changing this topic to be about him would do a disservice in terms of the thing I learned that day, and tracing back the game data and the player data, and based on the idea that I would have been watching a Patriots game, as that is the team that I root for, this unfortunately ties back to Aaron Hernandez. In closing on this rather awkward thing learned, it is true that a random rookie on an NFL team can win the game for them. It sounds like a rather cliché concept, often things you would see in movies or whatnot, but it is true nonetheless. It happens all the time. It may not be necessarily all that notable. In 2010, I was kind of really just starting to watch football just a little bit more than I had in the past, so I'd think that this revelation was probably just a bit more substantial to me back then. Nowadays, I wouldn't really consider this much of a thing learned, 
just kind of a marvel every now and then because you're seeing a new face on an NFL team do something extraordinary. December 20th. IMAX in Apple stores can't handle having every application opened at once. Okay, let's lighten the mood here just a little bit. In 2010, we would goof around, and this was probably around winter break, or nearing winter break, and we would maybe go to the mall or whatever where there was an Apple store. You know, we were just college kids. We just kind of go in, goof around. Wasn't really anything super, you know, delinquent or anything. Being the nerds we were, we would maybe just open up Safari on the Mac computers in the Apple store and maybe just set the homepage to Microsoft.com or YouGotRickRoll.com, which would simply just play Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up, and we would maybe just crank the volume and then just walk away. You know, just little harmless things like that. I don't know. We were less mature back then. It's kind of funny when you look back at it now. We also might have whipped out our zunes and would stand idly by the iPod displays, pretending we were listening to our zunes in the iPod section, just because we wanted to be ironically funny. I don't know. You can justify or not justify this however you'd like. We were just younger back then. So another wisecracking thing we would maybe try to do was we would open up the applications folder on maybe one of their most powerful computers on display, or maybe an iMac or a MacBook, maybe a Mac Pro, and we would just highlight everything and open everything and then just walk away. Or we would stand by and see just how well the computer could do trying to open every single installed application that it had and wouldn't you know it, oftentimes it struggled to keep up. And I noticed this specifically with the iMacs. iMacs of this time would have been introduced in mid-2010, featuring that generation's Intel Core i3, i5, and i7 processors, and there would not be another refresh until May 3rd of 2011. And apparently, just these... Intel processors of the time, combined with the memory and graphics chips, just wasn't quite up to the task of opening every single application. Although I'm sure, almost up to today, that any Mac would probably have at least just a little bit of trouble trying to open up everything right at the same time. If you just imagine maybe 30 people trying to run through a single narrow doorway, you can probably get the visual. It doesn't matter how powerful a CPU is, if you throw way too many tasks all at the same time to execute simultaneously, unless the CPU is incredibly built for that single purpose and scenario, you're probably going to experience maybe just a little bit of a drop in performance. Just my thoughts based on logic, you know? December 21st. LDAP failover. Alright, are you ready for a in-depth, advanced, big topic? I'm not really, but I'll try to make something out of it. In a previous episode, I discussed what LDAP was, 
As a refresher, it means Lightweight Directory Access Protocol. It is basically a directory service for an enterprise. If you can imagine Active Directory or Open Directory, Microsoft and Apple's respectively, that's basically what it is. It does user, group, computer management, and a bunch of other bells and whistles. A server generally controls LDAP or dictates what you do with it. Usually, these services are hosted on a server, but what happens if that server suddenly goes down? How will users log in? How will computers authenticate to the domain? And how will permissions be applied? It's like when the phone book blows up. Like, how do you look up phone numbers and such? Well, LDAP failover is a solution to this. In a server environment, it is definitely not uncommon to have a second server be on standby or in a passive state to be able to take the reins if the first server goes down, either intentionally or unintentionally. That is the core idea of failover in general, encompassing not only just LDAP, but really anything in the computing world. I was detailing in a previous episode that I was trying to get this to work with the two brand new servers at the TV station. Previously, there was only one server with no failover setup. With the new hardware, we wanted to have a failover setup, so if one ever had to go down for maintenance or crashed, the users would see no degradation in service. I was dealing with Mac servers, so I was learning the concepts of Open Directory Master and Open Directory Replica. And the way this worked was you designated a primary server as the Open Directory Master, and you specified the backup server, or the server that would be the failover target, to be the Open Directory Replica. And it was basically as easy as opening up the open directory settings in server admin on the failover server you look up what role it is to play in the open directory configuration you click change and you change it to be an open directory replica you point it at the server you want to designate as the open directory master and then click ok and basically that was what the setup involved at least according to my notes from back then. I'm not sure if this was really necessarily the best practice, but this was what I did to set it up at least, and I recall it worked. So there we go. Thing learned and thing accomplished. What a nice little day. December 22nd. Water physics in Minecraft. All right, more Minecraft stuff. Water physics in Minecraft have also changed over the years. The current method of doing things underwater in Minecraft, in addition to swimming and a whole bunch of other stuff, has been expanded upon in the updates since 2010. So we're going to have to regress a bit and recall what the state of the game was back in 2010 in terms of underwater activities in the game. By December 2010, Minecraft was in alpha version 1.2.6, the final version released before it changed over to Minecraft beta, which was a major milestone update. 
the way water works in Minecraft is very, very different than the way water works in real life. As an example, you can take a bucket in Minecraft, and you can go to a body of water, and you can scoop up a small bit of the water, and then you can place that block of sorts in another area, which will spawn a whole bunch of water, but the original point where you place the water can still be picked up and moved somewhere else, along with all the water that is spawned from it. It's sort of like an infinite single source of water, which, of course, in real life, if you did the same thing, it would just kind of fizzle out everywhere and you wouldn't be able to pick it up again, which would be kind of silly. But in Minecraft, it's different. So back then, I was kind of just playing with the concept of picking up water, moving it to another spot, creating a waterfall from way up high, and it would create a huge column of water, which you could then swim up or down, which kind of provided a nice method of vertical transportation. In addition, inside oceans or lakes, the way water worked was you couldn't swim, you basically just moved slower, and destruction of blocks was basically a quarter of the speed compared to performing the same action on land. Uh, let's see what else. Oh, there was a rather amusing quote-unquote bug or feature where if you created two really long rows of blocks high up in the air and you could extend it out for maybe a quarter of a mile, half a mile, a really ridiculously long direction, and you could line every other block with the water, creating a waterfall across these two rows, creating almost like a gauntlet or a tunnel, you could then place a boat at the beginning of it, and the boat would actually accelerate as it traversed every other waterfall. It kind of created this sort of like water slide slash roller coaster slash thrill ride thing, and it was completely ridiculous. It was also completely fun. I don't know if that is still in the game, actually. I haven't tried it as of late, and I should probably go back to one of my old worlds where I still have that set up and just give it a spin. But yeah, in summary... I think some of these explanations are getting kind of funny. But all of this is just highlighting that water physics in Minecraft are very different than real life, and there's a lot to learn, and you have to retrain your brain if you're going to play the game. Not to mention that current versions of Minecraft have more updated versions of said water physics, but some of these non-worldly properties still apply to this day in the game. December 23rd, which elevator at Best Buy is faster? There is a Best Buy about 10 to 15 minutes from my house that has a very peculiar set of elevators that take you from the parking garage up to the main floor, which takes you into the store. While both elevators remain routinely inspected, as I sure hope they would be, and you can validate this by looking at the inspection certificate inside the elevator, there is definitely something iffy, wrong, or quirky about one of the two of them. There is one where if you press the button to wait for the elevator, it definitely makes some interesting noises, and it comes down a lot slower than the other elevator. Bear in mind, both of these elevators only go from the parking garage level up one floor to the store level, with no other options. So it's not even going 
very far vertically. However, one of them still goes much faster than the other, and there have been times where you get in the elevator and those doors close behind you, you kind of wonder if you're going to get stuck, and sometimes there's some interesting rumblings, delays, and overall uneasy feelings when you're inside, just waiting to go up or down. So generally, I discovered that maybe I should just avoid that elevator entirely and take the other one. I have a friend who worked at this Best Buy, and he also suggested the exact same thing. There were times where if we did take that elevator, sometimes we would try to jump in it or make it rock or roll or see if it would do anything even more stupid than it already was doing. It's been at least 15 years that that elevator has been in that state, long before 2010, going back as far as maybe 2007, 2006, 2005 even. Elevators, man. Not even once. December 24th. Scratch tickets can be ridiculously complicated. Ah, I remember this. For many, many years, my family had a tradition where we would purchase scratch tickets for one another, and on Christmas Eve we would scratch them off to see if anyone won anything. Completely random chance. Luck of the draw. Sometimes you won, sometimes you lost. But it was all in good fun. It was almost a bit of a competition to see whose pack of scratch tickets yielded the most money at the end. Depending on what state you bought these scratch tickets in, it seemed that they would have varying levels of complexity to them. For example, if you bought them in New Hampshire, it seems they were very straightforward. A lot of the scratch tickets would be, okay, here's nine things to scratch. If you scratch this icon, you win this amount of money. If you scratch three of the same icon, you win even more money. And also scratch off this random tenth icon over here. And if you get a superstar icon or something, you win everything on the card. However, if you got scratch tickets from, say, Massachusetts, suddenly, a few of these, you have to flip the card over, and there's paragraphs and paragraphs of rules, conditions, and gotchas that you have to follow and nothing was more infuriating than one particular scratch ticket which took us at least 30 minutes to an hour to fully process. It had so many rules, and we weren't even sure if we won by the time we were done it. It was like a word search crossword puzzle type thing, almost like a combination. And I remember we were just scratching our heads as to like, what is the end goal here? How do you win anything? Like, the matching logic made no sense. It seemed like you had to maybe match words, but not all the time. It was really, really difficult. At the end of it, I think we maybe won what amounted to $2. Not even sure. I just remember it took at least three or four of us to read the rules, and we all had our own interpretations of the rules, because they were worded very interestingly. Maybe it was intentional but I feel that was way too complex for a scratch ticket on Christmas Eve. I think that whoever is making these, I applaud your creativity, and I applaud your desire to make scratch tickets worth their dollar amount of purchase price, but some of us just want to enjoy the dumb action of scratch it off and find out if you won something or not. 
not necessarily read an entire playbook of how to win or lose a scratch ticket, which you still have no control over at the end. It's still predetermined. You know, I'm going back on what I said earlier. I can't quite remember which state it was that was the more complex state, whether it was New Hampshire, Massachusetts, or maybe if they flip-flopped each year. One of the two. I guess if ever in doubt, you could always just take them back to the grocery store or wherever place that you purchased them at, and I think you can usually get someone to just tell you outright if you won or lost something. Just as long as you didn't scratch out the void section, which is often in a strange corner of the scratch ticket. Not really sure why that even presents itself as an option to con you out of the money that you potentially won, Maybe it's for anti-theft purposes. I don't know, I'm not an expert here in scratch ticket logic. But it's still a mystery to me. Have fun, be safe, celebrate responsibly, and carefully read the rules of those scratch tickets. And finally, Christmas Day, 2010, December 25th. Digital picture frame usage. This was me learning how to use a digital photo frame that we purchased for my grandmother. The idea was that we could load it up with plenty of family photos and it would present itself as a slideshow or whatever, and she could enjoy it. We would periodically reload it with updated photos or old photos that we may have scanned from slides or prints. And the idea was that it would provide more value than a standard printed photo frame. It also was a nice workaround for the fact that my grandmother was not very into computers. This was more of an easy plug-and-play, powered-on-and-enjoy-the-content solution for her. This was before the iPad era, or at least right before it. The end of 2010 was basically right when the first iPad was still coming into its own, and no one, in my family at least, had one at that point. And we didn't really have any other portable means of displaying digital photos other than bringing a laptop over to her. And I don't think we really had one around that was really capable of being dedicated to such a thing. So we found this little digital photo frame and we gave it to her as a Christmas gift that year. It was okay. You loaded the photos in via a flash drive or you could just load the photos from a flash drive without copying them to the photo frame's internal storage. That way, if you needed to add more photos, it was as simple as unplugging it, plugging it into a computer, copying the photos, and then moving them over. The photo frame also had a few additional options, one of which was it did have an optional wireless card thing, but we didn't have that. Even if it did, I don't think I would have honestly used it because I think the interface on that photo frame was not pleasant to use. It was slow. It was annoying. Whatever wireless protocol it had at the time probably wouldn't work today or it would be too old. Sometimes you just get a feeling with some of these niche, hokey, older, esoteric digital solutions, the software just isn't quite there, especially if it's made by some no-name brand. And that was basically what this photo frame was. It was okay if you didn't touch it much, and if you at least had the photos loaded in via your little USB device, I guess it was okay. I know nowadays we still have it somewhere, but it hasn't really been used in quite some time. We found better ways to display photos. 
particularly with a huge TV and a Plex server, which is just a little media server we have, which can just display photos via a built-in app on the smart TV. So that's kind of a lot more convenient and easy. And we also have iPads and laptops as well that are much more advanced than they were in 2010. But hey, that was us on the cutting edge of technology, or at least trying to come up with a creative solution. And with that, we have reached the end of the 51st week of 2010. Those were the things that I learned. In the next episode, we will round off not only this calendar year, but one of the days of the week will include 2011 as well. That's just how calendar weeks work. That one day will still be technically part of the 52nd week of 2010. So, as always, it was really fun going back and reviewing all of these random, wacky, some serious, some funny, some in-the-middle things that I learned, and I hope you enjoyed me rambling and talking about some of these as well. If you enjoyed this content, of course, feel free to subscribe to this podcast, and you can go back and watch the other episodes, and stay tuned for future ones as well. Feel free to rate this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever accepts podcast ratings is fine with me. Feel free to leave any feedback if you feel you have any. And other than that, that is about all I have for this week. Thank you very, very much, and I will talk to you next time.